Welcome to the Dividend Cafe, financial food for thought. Well, hello and welcome to this special edition of the Dividend Cafe podcast. I um, am here with the Investment Committee of the Bonson Group. My name is David Bonson and I serve as our Chief Investment Officer and Managing Partner and I have to my right Robert Graham. To his right, Julian Frazzo. To across from him, Brian Seitel. And to his right, Dea Pernaz. How'd I do? Pretty good. good. Yeah. I think you got it. Just getting the, the left right is hard these days. <laughs> um, there, maybe there's a political metaphor in there. Oh, yeah. It's uh-huh. hard to figure out what's on your <laughs> left and right. Uh, so the reason for our podcast and discussion today is uh, specific to the U.S.-China trade war. It's been a topic that has pretty much dominated significant amount of... Um, capital markets uh, discussion, analysis, and application since February of 2018, and then particularly over the last uh, couple of months, um, there's been a number of different periods in which the uh, trade war has helped move markets dramatically lower or dramatically higher. You have a lot of volatility. It doesn't feel that investors, um, it, it's interesting, it doesn't feel that most investors like they've lost a lot of money. Um, because the market's up pretty sizably on the year. It doesn't feel like they've made a whole lot of money uh, be, uh, because of how markets did last year. And and so the, depending on kind of what timeline someone chooses to look at, the fact of the matter is both things are sort of true. It's been a really good year in the market, and yet if you bring it back just a little bit further, we're actually kind of just flat for a long time. We're really, it's, it's coming up on two years that the market's really sort of flat, meaning the S&P 500, not necessarily for all investors, like those who have implemented uh, rebalancing asset allocation you know, with bonds and alternatives and things like that. Total return for investors has been just fine, but I, I think I set all this up this way to make clear that it's the trade war that has primarily, I think, been the source of kind of directionless markets who've been range-bound for some time. And uh, so now let's just really bring it into the micro of maybe the last four or five weeks. Everyone's known this summit has been coming up with uh, with China, kind of a preliminary summit. It wasn't with President Xi himself, President Trump, but some of the, the you know senior-level people that have been handling all the negotiations Getting together, and there's been a lot of talk like it was going to totally crash, or it was going to be, you know, really, really sizable. And I think uh, that what you got in the market response is a perfectly um, fitting summary for what took place. You had markets down a few hundred points at the beginning of the week, and you had markets up a few hundred points at the end of the week. If you take the hundred points you're up on Thursday, and the over 300 we were up on Friday, it more than offset what the downside had been earlier in the week. And now we're sitting here recording uh, about halfway through the market day on Monday morning. We've had a whole weekend to digest, more news reports than you know what to do with, plenty of ample opportunity for smart people and incredibly not smart people uh, <laughs> to analyze things. And i got to talk about some of that today. Um, and and now the markets were – the futures, uh, when I went to bed last night, were up about 90. And when I went got up this morning, they were down about 90. And then the market right now is up of 20 or 30 points. So, uh, it, you know, well, I'm gonna, I actually have a comment I'm going to make about that in a little bit. Okay, so I'm going to start with, with Robert. And then we got, I have a lot of questions I want to ask. And we're going to have our discussion and let our listeners, especially our clients, uh, partake in our discussion. Um, is, was the story of what took place Friday a big story? I, I don't think so. You know, I, I, you know, to use a metaphor, I feel like I was watching a boxing match and the, the, the two fighters are kind of clinching. It doesn't mean the fight's over. It's just a, a time for everyone to take a little bit of a breath is, is the way I looked at it. And, you know, you saw the activity last week positive. I mean, some forward progress, I guess. And then today's kind of a sleepy market day. So being flattish makes a little sense to me, frankly. Let me jump in there and make clear um, when you say sleepy market yeah. day. For those who don't know, the stock market's open today, but the bond market is closed. And banks are closed. And you go, what's after the stock market? It has a lot to do with the stock market. You have no ability to affect capital, tra- you know, uh, uh, money transfers. And those that are involved in the in- rates market that are uh, in multi-asset class management often have to kind of sit the day out entirely. We A lot of times in the past, our annual New York trip has fallen on this mm-hmm. day. And I've always seen it as a very slow day. I can always tell by the restaurant crowds in New York City mm. that the stock market's open, but the bond market's not. And the restaurants are like half full, you know. Mm-hmm. So this it, that there is a sort of just a sense in which today's kind of a fake day. Yeah. 
which which maybe adds to the the tepidity of what we're seeing in the markets. Yeah, and I mean the things that we we kind of expected would be first to, to to break you know China and and Trump if you will you know the agriculture it's kind of a win win for both sides in this case you know China's feeling the pain they have a you know the swine fever issue over there. And then Trump needs to really sure up support in the uh, agricultural heartland right now. So that was that was kind of an easy one. But let's not forget, nothing's actually inked at this point. So it's just kind of muddled through. This is good headline news, but I don't think it means anything as of yet, personally. Okay. So do you think the market was wrong to go up 400 points Thursday and Friday? No, it's a reprieve from kind of the bluster. It's, it's a positive announcement in, in some regards. So I think that's perfectly appropriate. Okay. Julian, what do you think? Um I think to me that's much uh, bigger deal what happened um, on Friday. Not so much the phase one deal, which I think doesn't mean that much. But I think what's most important is a few weeks ago we were wondering, you know, how far Trump was willing to go with this, and is he, you know, is he gonna? Are we going to like a bigger war? Is he ready to hurt the economy more? And you had this deadline that was coming, 15th of October, for new tariffs. And clearly, you know, he had to find a way out of, of that, uh, you know, find an excuse to get, to get bail out of this. And he found that excuse having, doing this meeting and, and having this, you know, fa- phase one or, um, uh, negotiation. And as of today, we don't have really much. You know, there's no press release. There's nothing that you can really look at. You know, there's no agreement. There's just, you know, a meeting where, you know, I guess he's, uh, Trump has really changed the rhetoric. And I think what's key to me is that now, I guess he realized that he's hurting the economy, that he's not going to get reelected if he hurts the economy more than that. And that's so he's just completely reversing his, uh, I guess, approach of uh, on trade war. And I think that means I think we're you're going to be volatility ups and down. But I guess we have a new direction from Trump. And that uh, that's the big uh, positive news for me. I okay. Think, and mm-hmm. I think that was the takeaway too from Friday. I think it was big news, but I think it was not necessarily because anything actually got done. It was sort of a handshake deal, but it's more of shifting of gears for the negotiations of being kind of you know counterproductive to productive, uh, or mm-hmm. you know something getting more and you know escalating more or de-escalating. And I think that's why the market was up. It's hopeful, and it just sounds like things are moving in the right direction. Um, and you know you got to realize, I mean, exports from China to the U.S. are down twenty-two percent. Um, over the month. So it's a pretty big deal. And they were down 16% the month before. So they're feeling the pain. I think they're feeling the pain more um, than likely the U.S. is. But either way, this is a turning point for some productivity and negotiations. Dale, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. I th- it, it, there's, uh, there's not a lot to add there, I think. Um, I Yeah, I think as far as news go, it might be big news. But as far as the actual stamping out an agreement between these two nations... Uh, I, I think it's it's a little blip. I think there's uh, a lot more to come in terms of tariffs, jockeying, uh, you know, a lot of a lot more tension uh, in the future. But but it's far better news than an escalation. So so I I, I understand markets going up, markets reacting positively to that news. I think I think that a lot of what um, is missed in the media and 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 i have to say a lot of it is missed on purpose because i don't really believe that all of them don't get this i i just don't i think that in the attempt some of it is political where they want to minimize what could be viewed as a a Mm. positive thing for trump some of it is just dramatic they want to make something bigger that isn't that big of a deal whether it's political motives or commercial motives i don't really care it's just been really bad coverage it's either been under dramatic or over dramatic at every opportunity, and you, I would assume each time with an agenda. And and what and and so to that point, and I asked Robert in the follow up, like, okay, so it sounds like everyone doesn't think this announcement itself was that big of a deal, but there's some bigger things that come out of it. Is 400 points Thursday, Friday a big deal? And and someone could say, look, uh, if this wasn't a big deal, why'd the market go up? At one point, the market was up 500 points on Friday. And I thought that the sell-off last 30 minutes was purely related to people just saying, hey, yeah, uh, this is probably a 500-point story, mm-hmm. but I'm not going into the weekend. Not, no, I don't know what Trump's going to say about this over the weekend and so forth. This is mm-hmm. one thing that bugs me so much about the president that, honestly, I, I, I think that Julian's 100% right, by the way, about what this story does tell us as to where he is now. Um, it doesn't tell us exactly where we're going to get. But what could change this this thing with the president that now looks like he really wants to get a deal done? And, he, and he's willing to settle for a deal that's probably not going to be near as hard as he would have said it was going to be a year ago. I think that he would take $10 billion less of soybean purchases by China 
if it meant them tweeting nice things about him mm-hmm. and he would and he would demand more uh, uh, commitments of, of, of Chinese purchases if they were to go kind of minimize the deal or whatnot. In other words, it's kind of like uh, becoming more ego-driven instead of substantive. Now, there shouldn't be anything surprising about it. And, mm-hmm. I, and I don't even mean that personal to Trump, although he might be at another level of that. But there's always politics and political aspirations that are going to play into these things. But the idea that the market would not... Um, would have gone up 400 points and people have to immediately try to pick like, oh boy, the market's way ahead of its skis on this. This is, this story is not that big of a story. But the market was down 300 points Tuesday. So it's like, how far back do you have to go to have a little historical context? We're asking people to do 48 hours of research. I'm not asking people to go back the full 18 months, although I don't think that should be that hard. Yeah. Certainly over the course of a week that started Monday and ended Friday, the market didn't underreact or overreact at all. It was just kind of, it barely even moved. Yeah. I, do you see what I'm saying, Brian? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think it was interesting, the the difference in the yield curve too, which I think is very forward looking. Um, you know, the the three month, <coughs> 10, 10 year treasury yield curve was inverted for you know a long time. It, it, it was uh, decreasing um, in steepness, I guess, since 18 months ago when the trade, starts, trade talk uh, negotiations kind of tariffs sort of started. And then as of this week, it finally went positive. Um, we're, we're right now, I pulled it up a few minutes ago, um, anticipating, I guess, that you were going to bring this up. But we're six basis points positively inverted on the three-month 10-year, yeah. which is the most it's been positively um, mm. sloped in, in uh, over a month. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's real. And, you know, so, so the positive, you know, the change in, in, in stance with negotiations, you know, being more productive now, moving in the right direction, albeit we don't have a deal signed or anything, but at least there's two sides kind of willing to, to come to the table and try to get one done. I think they've both felt enough pain. Some of it might be more ego driven or political driven for on the Trump side with an election coming up. And the other side is they, they've got their own, you know, side to deal with, but, um, but I think we're moving in the right direction. Well, I think I think that the way markets work, Julian, as a discounting mechanism, um, you're, you're right to bring up that it would be hard, although not impossible, but it'd be hard to look at the events of the week and what appears to be headed towards the phase one deal. I think the whole thing of people going, oh, wait, wait a second, this isn't written. It's like, did anyone think a written deal was coming Friday? Mm. <laughs> I don't even know if they had translators in the, and, and like... Uh, administrative people at the meeting. I mean, it was always a negotiation. They never talked about a written deal coming. But no, we have a footprint of a deal. There's some things in there that surprised me that were better than expected. But here's my question. Um, you mentioned that it appears now Trump's really determined to get a deal. I think that the December tariffs that have not yet been addressed are also going to come off. And on a dollar basis, our friends at Strategus Research kind of boils down for us, if we say, oh, they're just kind of not going forward with October escalation, it doesn't sound like a big of a deal. But if we say that tariffs that had a 46% additional escalation are not going up, 0% move from where we were versus 46%, that's a huge deal. Yeah. And that's what that's what has been salvaged. And that the dollar amounts thus far amount to $12.5 billion dollars of impact to GDP, that's a big deal. Yeah, if that happens, that's a big deal, but that's, I think, I don't think that's priced in at the moment, um, you know. Now this, this interim announcement can't, just the one tranche, shaves off 12 and a half billion of planned increases for next yeah. year. That That's the next big, uh, big tariff, you know, mid-December and between uh, now and then, we'll have this uh, November meeting, I think they're supposed to meet the, the leaders on the 16th or 17th, and hopefully that's when they can agree to you know, not implement these tariffs in December. That might come later. But as you say, I mean, if don't, these tariffs uh, don't happen, and now you still have, if you look today, uh, the implied cuts, um, they still have 75% chance of a cut in, in October, and it goes to uh, 80, 85% by the end of the year. So you, with you for a third cut this year, then let's see what earnings look like starting tomorrow. And if tariff, you know, because Trump is clearly, I think the really big difference is just Trump, I realize he's not going to win that, that war and he needs to get reelected first. So I guess he's completely changing his rhetoric and that's the big news. And now, you know, it's... But uh, Dan, is the fact that there's positive news in the trade front and that the futures market are still saying the Fed's going to cut, does this reinforce the point I've been making for a long time that the Fed's actions never had anything to do with the trade war? So as far as uh, as far as that being big news, uh, and as far as how that links to the Fed decisions, 
I'm 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 gonna have to go with your opinion on as far as uh, as what kind of pressures this puts on the Fed, as far as Fed kind of cutting or or whatnot. I think at the end of the day, it comes down to their uh, data dependency, and uh, th- they said that they're going to cut, and we think they're going to cut another 25 bips before year end, regardless of uh, what happens with the tariffs mid-December. If this deal on Friday had included a press release, had included a press conference, yeah. had included Trump and G hugging, <laughs> CapEx in the U.S. has still collapsed. Mm-hmm. The Fed is not cutting because of uh, or not cutting and, and whatnot on the on the postulations of this trade war. It's the impact in the corporate economy and the leading versus lagging confusion is immense here. You have a tremendously sluggish business economy as measured by manufacturing, industrial production, mm-hmm. capital expenditures. Mm-hmm. So if the Fed is data dependent, they say they are, you're 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 agreeing with them. Mm-hmm. They they were going to cut anyways, right, Brad? Yeah, they will. And you know, again, it's it's because of the data. It's you know, services sector with forty seven point five or something like that below fifty, so that signals contraction. And they've got the rest of the world to do, to look at as well. So that global landscape of negative rates and slow growth across pretty much all economies, I think it's cause and effect. You know, the trade war, the tariff um, negotiation back and forth is a deflationary. Um, uh, mechanism for for things, and I think that's maybe caused some of those numbers to pull back a little bit, which in turn causes Fed to maybe want to lower rates a little bit. But um, I think it's all those things together. And yeah, uh, it's not the actual event from those discussions; it's how it kind of, it bleeds into permeates. That, yeah. Into that data. Mm-hmm. yeah, Robert, let's um let's switch gears to the idea of tail risk, and it's something that that we want clients to understand that uh, so much of what we have to do when we're engaged in capital markets is around very low probability but high impact events. And when they're negative, we generally call them tail risk. And, and I wonder if one of the most unappreciated aspects of this story, people are saying how much agriculture they are buying or not buying, and is it October, December, and whatnot. But I wonder if the removal of some currency tail risk is the biggest part of the story that it appears China's agreed to kind of set the level of interventions they're doing their currency at a certain place, and that therefore that takes away the huge tail risk event from early August, which was U.S. retaliation in currency intervention, that being off the table. What say the? I read something uh, from one of our uh, great research providers this morning talking about the currency issue specifically and the fact that. The, the, the Chinese currency had already depreciated pretty significantly past that seven level via market forces, it kind of uh, alleviated a lot of that risk already. Now, a lot of the moves that would happen in the future with regards to the U.S. not intervening, that's a good thing because we talked in an earlier edition about how that would be somewhat unprecedented for us to, to intervene there. And I'm glad that that's pretty much off the table as a result of those market forces and some type of uh, trade deal going forward. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a huge deal. I don't think people are talking enough about that going forward, but I don't think much is going to happen again because of those market forces that already started moving their currency in that direction. So what's a what's a bigger deal to markets? And maybe there isn't an answer, but uh, but I think it's good for us to take a stab at it. Um, it is twelve and a half billion dollars of planned tariffs that are already canceled, and that number will hit twenty four billion if uh, the December escalation goes away as well. So I always like to frame this in Dividend Cafe on the uh, relative to the impact from corporate tax reform. Because I point out that there was, let's say, $100 billion of fiscal stimulus that came in from it. Here's what the impact of trade war has been. So if you start talking about 12 to 25% of that level being back in play in the economy, I think it gives you kind of a context for how sizable it is. So, with, uh, uh, But you have to measure that against something that the market can't see because it didn't happen, which is the notion of an escalating currency war with China. I'm going to share my view, so I'm not hiding the ball, but I want you to disagree with me if you disagree or or just comment around it. I think that the biggest story of what could have gone wrong being gone on the currency side, that's what I think is the biggest story, that there is a significant uh, uh, elimination of tail risk. The upside of the story right now is very minimal, 
but the downside to the story has largely been uh, a lot of it has been eliminated. Do you think I'm on to something there, Julian? Yeah, I agree. I, I'm not, I don't know if I would put that only about uh, currency. I think it's the whole downside of being in this negative loop of uh, more tariffs, more retaliation. Yes. And I think it feels. But are to we me out of that negative loop if something comes back in phase two? If there is, so in other words, we're, we've paused. But yeah. is that negative loop gone, or do, or is it paused? Yeah, we've seen the wheel many times going back I would bet that this time is different and that's because of the political agenda mm -hmm. and so that mm -hmm. Trump cannot afford to you know be back in negative loop that whatever happens with phase two whatever happens with December 15 tariffs he'll find a way to spin it as a victory and he'll find a way to uh, not hike tariffs because he cannot you know he needs a positive feedback he needs uh, you, know, you know it's not gonna help the economy probably but it's gonna help sentiment and that's how indirectly you're going to help the economy. You know, people feel a bit less worried about uh, the world. So even after, let's say he gets reelected, you you still think he tries to spin everything positively, or? Well, in you mean after he's reelected, yeah, I guess it'll be different. If, if you're Trump talking about leading up to it, you're talking yeah. about more leading. I'm thinking up. about leading it up leading to up it. To so yeah. we have one year of, I think, you know, one year of uh, trying to avoid any volatility, a ceasefire, yeah. and yeah. then then we'll then, 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 then we'll see. Yeah, yeah well, it's something like uh, 100 percent of the time since 1984, the incumbent, pre you know, yeah. wins. Yeah. The stock market's up 90 days before yeah. the election. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, well, I, I think that it, 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 I wrote a paper that goes all the way back to uh, to the Depression yeah. and only can find one argument, and it's actually a false positive because you had the market up and the incumbent lose, and that was in a very unpopular Korean War uh, where uh, Truman had only been elected by about three votes to begin with, the famous mm -hmm. upset over Dewey. And then Eisenhower was an incredibly popular Republican general, beat Truman. That was the only precedent I found where you had a, and it isn't about 90 days versus one year, because uh, each election I did measure in a different time frame. It was, was it a positive stock market experience mm -hmm. versus not? And, and essentially the stock market's been an almost perfect predictor for 100 years. Um, but see, Trump's falling in that gray area. Because you're going to have very likely a really positive total return from his election through the, the uh, new election date. But it's very possible that you have a muted extended period in the more recent time. So if you end up at Dow 27,000 uh, next year, um, we're around where we are now. The fact of the matter is that the total return from where it was in November 16 is pretty good. Annualized. But, but, uh, annu but, the, 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 but it will be coming off of two years of flatness, yeah. uh, and that's, that's difficult. And by the way, that's what happened with Obama, too, when Hillary was running. Is it was a very, Obama had eight positive years of stock market return, and you had a really high annualized return out of the bottom dregs of the, of the uh, financial crisis. His return is dramatically lowered if you count it from November when he was elected. Because what what it dropped from the election day to March of '09 when it bottomed okay. um, was so much that when that gets factored in, it takes away a few years of return. Yeah. But but and that's what you're supposed to measure. You don't measure from inauguration day. Like stock markets all of a sudden realized, oh, this guy's president on inauguration day. <laughs> you started election day. So my point being that Trump's gonna have this really good stock market return, but it may not feel like it if there's a year or two of mutedness. And, and if you recall, the market peaked in August of 14, mm -hmm. the dollar rose dramatically, oil markets collapsed, and it was actually uh, all the way up through past Brexit and whatnot. 16 it ended up rallying a bit. A lot of the rally came after the election, mm -hmm. but from mid-14 to mid-16, it was pretty flat. Yeah, totally yeah. flat. But it's better, yeah. it's better that than having, you know, going into a... Uh, into election with recession, and but you can't win yeah, then. Yeah. See, yeah, in other so, words, yeah. in other words, it's uh, a knowable outcome versus an outcome that's yeah. just positive enough to be unknowable. At least it's neutral. Yeah, it won't hurt him, I guess. Yeah, but I think I think that there's another factor too. And now we're going to delve into politics, and I want to bring it back to trade and economics. People love it when we talk currency and 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 trade economics. It's one of the most, I think, just kind of enjoyable entertainment things in the whole podcast universe. <laughs> And politics, frankly, bores people, right? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> another factor. What if this trade war had careened out of control, markets dropping, economy worsening, a lot of the worst-case outcomes, 
not going into the November election next year, but going into the impeachment fight. So I really believe that uh, the the consensus view is correct here, that the House will end up voting to impeach him and that the votes will not be there in the Senate. But i got to say, with the pushback I've seen over the last week to his decision in Syria with the Kurds and whatnot, where Republicans that I've never seen criticize him in three years have now been very vocal in criticism, if the wheels were, it's not happening. I'm not saying this. And I'm certainly not saying I want it. I don't want any listeners to get the wrong idea. But I think it's worth discussing from our vantage point, from a market standpoint. If there was a feeling that the wheels were coming off the bus and the market was collapsing and the trade war was going nowhere and it was giving talking points to Democrat candidates like it did at the last debate when he said, I want to see Trump get a deal. I think it was Mayor, uh, Mayor Pete who kind of was uh, trolling him a little about it. I think you could see some senators become more likely to sway vote, too. Do you agree, Robert? I do. I think he's very weakened at this point as a result of the specifically the international news around the, the Kurdish withdrawal. I think that was a, a, you know, probably a big mistake. And then he tried to walk it back with the you know tariff deals, things like that. I, I don't know that it would necessarily get the uh, Republican senators over the line to, to actually enforce the impeachment removal. Not, not 20 of them, but no, four 20, or five but, of but them. But it's still, uh, you know, optically a, a big deal. And I think he's just trying to, you know, walk his way out of a corner here with this trade deal. And I, I think markets see that a little bit. Well, I agree. Mm-hmm. And I and I and I think that the um, that the point you brought up, Julian, that it looks like he now is not, is going to be a little bit protected from his his worst instincts is the most logical outcome but again, even that, I guess you have to kind of, you you know, you can't be conclusive because there's some unpredictability with the whole thing. So yeah. what do you guys think is the investment outcome? Like what would we be doing right now different than we were thinking a week ago? Anything at all? Is there any actionable difference in equity sectors, in small versus large cap and value growth and international? I'll ask you, Brian, and we're getting ready to have some pretty substantial meetings with two emerging markets managers in New York next week. Is emerging markets more attractive right now than a week ago? They get a trade deal going. Yes, it is. I mean, you know, that, that's been a big headwind for, for that, you know, for all international investing, particularly emerging emerging markets. Because of currency or because of trade or both? Both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think both. And, you know, it's um, so, so, what, so I would say this to your question, would we be changing allocations based on what happened on Friday? No, probably not. Um, but it definitely gives some validation to some positioning that we already have, which is in the emerging world and, and more of a bias over value to, to growth, those types of things. I think those are going to be benefactors from getting some positive negotiations done between the two countries. Well, I, I, I would agree. Dea, do you think that this is something that um, Brian brought up the sentiment? I think that there has been a negative sentiment in emerging markets. I'll tell you what has not suffered through it is fundamentals. They're, they're, they're low-valued, uh, the, the way we approach emerging markets in particular. Let's leave China out of it in their big export economy. But just looking at South America, looking at other parts of Southeast Asia, um, it seems to me that the overall environment has got to add a point to the P.E. ratio of emerging markets, mm-hmm. which is worth 5 to 8 percent. What do right. you think? Yeah, I just think the emerging markets, if you want to lump uh, just – those countries and that that asset class, I think they're huge benefits to the free flow of capital and free trade. And if there's a higher likelihood that we are moving more towards that, they're going to be beneficiaries of that, uh, just like everybody else. Them to more of an extent because they're so dependent on that capital versus maybe a developed nation. So, so I think, I, I I think that might agree. worth it might be yeah. worth a little unpacking. Okay, uh, are mm-hmm. you saying dependent on the capital? in the sense of their economic activity, or are you referring to the drag of dollar-denominated debt, I'm, the, I'm, the, the currency impact? I am referring to the as far as how that capital affects economic activity. Okay. The more foreign direct investment, yep. the more the, the wealth of that country increases if you measure that wealth through the amount of goods and services that are available to those citizens. So. Yeah. So yeah, I, I and you know obviously those companies that we invest in, uh, the, those earnings will grow and those fundamentals will be stronger. Hence, I think it it, it should warrant a higher higher PE. Yeah. yeah so Julian, is there anything in the U.S. equity side that you think is kind of impacted? And again, please be careful. No individual names, yes. but bottom up, what do you think? Yeah, uh, yeah. I was gonna say um, I don't think valuations. Uh, are really uh, impacted, but the prices at which we can buy some of these uh, these companies really 
tend to move a lot, you know, can be volatile. And I always screen for new opportunities, you know, new names that we could add to the portfolio. And, and at the moment, it's hard to find anything in consumer, you know, the defensive sectors like utilities or consumer um, staples. They're pretty highly valued. But if you look at industrials or energy, energy. there's some really, there, there's some bargains out there. So then the question is, you know, do we want to, what would we sell to buy them? But there's, I think clearly the uncertainty and the trade war, you know, uh, uh, create some opportunities to buy very good companies that that uh, that are cyclical but not as cyclical as as the market believe uh, at a at a good price. Yeah. Well, in terms of um, the the small cap versus large cap discussion, I, I I don't know if you guys got to read that that strategy report out strategus this morning. I think there's um, some that I think maybe over apply the issue about dollar. That they tend to think that a uh, stronger dollar is inherently better for small cap and a weaker dollar, uh, therefore, would have less impact to it. And I'm not sure I agree with that. I think that to the extent you just are making a general comment that there's less multinationals in yeah. the small cap yeah. universe, I get that. But, you know, right now there's so many other factors at play. I'd be, I'd be a little skeptical of of going down one track and evaluating even with the trade war this is a big enough topic that we're having one uh, pod special podcast devoted to it but it's hard right now to say hey the a big announcement came we have a, a changed view on what could happen on, on tail risk of the trade war so we're altering our asset allocation when you still have the fed you still have yeah. questions about earnings season which we talked about last week is that a bigger story right now? I think it is. Kind of the feeling I get in the markets is that there's maybe going to be a more uh, rotation into the more value-based companies. I think people with all these- And it's been happening. It's been happening. And I think it will continue and perhaps accelerate. I think people are just getting a little sick of the uncertainty and they just they don't want to make money. They want, they want some positive cash flow, some profitability. Whether you talk about certain tech companies feuding with, you know, political candidates or, you know, unicorns with crazy valuations, things like that, I think people are just getting tired of it. I mean, th- those those parts of the economy had a, you know, a good run in terms of price return over the last couple of years, but mm. I, I think that rotation is going to continue into value going forward. And the small cap stuff, I would agree, it's it's really, you know, people saying they have less multinational exposure, but you know, strong dollar, weak dollar for them, they're, they're they just need a little bit of TLC in the union. Yes, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. You know, the Delta right now, Julian is the um between the pe of the growth of russell growth big cap and a uh, uh, value big cap is the two standard deviations apart from its average largest delta in history reflection of how cheap value is or reflection of how expensive growth is or both <laughs> i guess a bit of both uh it's all relative to i think it's first relative to the you know where the bond market and the treasury is out the, the fact that money is cheap and then that pushes, uh, you know, valuation higher. Um, so people, you know, ready to pay very high multiples for growth. Um, yeah. And they will only know in a few years if they're right or not. But I think it's uh, that's why it's more comfortable owning value. So if growth is so overpriced and value is so underpriced, why is the trade not obvious to go long value and short growth? Well, I, I don't know if I'd go that far, you know, as far as betting against the, the, the growth sector necessarily. But I also think there's a yield play. I mean, you know, rates are going lower. A um, lot of negative yielding debt around the world, $15 trillion. People need income. And technically, you get more income owning just the S&P 500 than you do a 10-year Treasury bond right now. And so I think those value stocks that, play, that pay out dividends and cash flow and things are attractive for those reasons, too. So I think that, rota- that rotation is underway, but I don't think it's over. I think it's probably second inning type of thing. I think it's just starting. Yeah, I think, I think my rhetorical question about why that isn't necessarily the best play is because one of the things is the, the momentum of it that it could ex- it could go worse. It could well, stay a long time, and frankly, it's been this way for a, long, a number of years. So, if it was such a, sc- it, it's the inability to see that when valuations get skewed from historical mean, it never is a timing signal. It just simply means that there is you know something that may be mispriced relative to historical levels, and it will correct th- as valuations mean revert. But that doesn't mean you know if it's in six months or two years. Sure. Um, does the trade war settling things, and let's say you get another quarter point from the Fed, does it really, really pick up the burden of earnings season, as we talked about last week, to tell us what happens in the next three months in the market? I think that the the uh, just going back to uh, the supply side, I think that if you see business confidence reacting 
very favorably to what happened on Friday and the ceasefire in general, uh, then I think you could see, as far as guidance goes, as a result of uh, a lot of these earnings calls, CEOs being a little bit more optimistic, which which should definitely help things. Well, I I, yeah. I will jump in. Yeah. There's no way. There's no way yeah. business confidence can can jump up meaningfully from what we got Friday. Because well, it's not enough. Business treasurers okay. making decisions for multi-billion dollar CapEx projects need more than that. They need ink on paper. Okay. Yeah, right. I, obviously, this is predicated on them having some faith in the agreement. I, I mean, if not just the phase one agreement, I'm right. saying I think that they need a, the mm-hmm. phase two agreement before you can see CapEx pick up. Well, you would yeah. even need the existing tariff removed, ideally, because you still have a lot of tariffs. Yeah, and that's, yeah, what that's, the, that's there. ultimately what they're after. A long-term deal is this what you is need for, for business yeah. confidence. That's what it is. I, yeah. I think the, the leg of the economic school that, that we need to continue watching is consumer confidence more than anything else. And I think earnings season is really important for that because if we see you know, profit margins start to compress a little bit, that's the time when companies perhaps start raising pri- prices down the road, right? Because mm-hmm. they want to get back to a, a more sustainable level. If, if the tariffs, the December ones don't come in, that's going to help that possible issue. So I think earnings more than ever are really important to watch in the, in the margin side. Well, but that's a different statement than what you started off making about consumer confidence being a big, big thing to watch people, here. People, I would push yeah. back on it. Be, of course, I'm permanently yeah. in school of thought. Thinks consumer confidence is the most worthless economic metric ever. <laughs> but do you you think that the consumer confidence has had um, a contrary uh, in, uh, behavior to the trade war thus far? No, I don't. I don't think so. Well, I think in terms of consumer, it confidence, seems to me. Let me let yeah, me put my yeah. cards on the table and then feel free yeah. to disagree. I think the consumer is always the last to know when they shouldn't be spending well, money. Yeah, you, yeah. So they'd be confident about something is a false signal often. I, I would agree. And so t- I would agree with you in that regard. But I think if prices increase, that will hit that consumer confidence uh, indicator more so than it has before. Because we haven't, as we talked about in previous podcasts, we haven't seen price increases necessarily in effect for the consumer okay. going forward. That's what, so that's so what it's more yeah. consumer behavior. That's right. That if there's actual increases in what they got to pay for an now, iPhone, now the dollars they spend on the credit card probably won't change. It's just more stuff. Right, right, right. right yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I, I I get that. And and so what will happen out of that? Will um, to Daya's question, will guidance from third quarter results have any discussion of a phase one deal, or will it more than likely still be, hey, we want to get back to capex, but we need more resolution? What do you think, Julian? Well, I think they will, you know, like they always do, beat on Q3 and then be very cautious guiding for Q4 and that uh, we're not out of the woods. Uh, so, you know, it's, um, I guess, probably because the market is always going into this uh, earnings season with, um, you know, being quite skeptical and, and conservative. We might we might have, you know, a better s- a season than we uh, were, uh, that was priced in, so it might go up a li- on average, and they're probably all going to do a bit better than expected. But then the guidance is, should be quite conservative because the uncertainty is still there. So what? What? Let's let's frame it this way. I'm going to ask you the question one way. I'm going to ask Brian another way. What would have been a bigger impact to markets had there been no Phase One preliminary deal Friday in trade, and yet our earnings results as they start to come in in the next few weeks? were dramatically outperforming those negative expectations yeah or if there was the trade deal there was but then we get disappointments in earnings maybe they're they're a lo- not disappointment but they're in line with expectations instead of beating expectation well i guess if you call it like a real trade deal well like it's you know it's off the table for the next 20 years i would say that's like a big big impact okay. and then yeah. who cares about the next quarter results because now you can forecast. what if they went on a plane and went home like the the the, <laughs> the premier said nah nothing's yeah. going on here well then back to fundamentals and back to earnings and really um i guess um this whatever happened at this negotiation is not going to impact q3 q4 is going to impact next year sure okay. and and um so if we take the flip other side of it what if what if you have uh, improvement from phase one, but not like the full 20-year deal and all that. But what if what if you get really good progress, trade front, another Fed rate cut, well, let's say two, you mm-hmm. get two, and the earnings numbers are just not good. For the first time, they're instead of like, I think we're expecting a 3% decline, yeah. and the last two times we're expecting a 2% decline, we got a 2% increase. Yeah. 
what if a 3% decline actually is a 5% decline? No, that's actually, that would be a big deal. Bigger uh, that, than the positive big deal of trade <laughs> and Fed and uh, positive backdrop. Yeah, I think it, it would depend. <laughs> the devil would be in the details of the trade deal. So it's hard to say definitively on that. So it would depend on exactly what was accomplished with the trade for me to be able to tell you exactly which one would overshadow the other. But I would say if you get, so earnings, we're already expecting earnings to be lower this quarter, 3 4%, something like that. Earnings have while, you know, widely uh, beat expectations this entire expansion pretty much every time. And so having lower guidance is not the end of the world. Technically, this will be like the 15th quarter of the last 20 quarters where we've had sort of negative or muted guidance and the market has gone up. And so th there's nothing wrong there. But um, yeah, I mean, I think um, if you had a dramatic downshift in the fundamentals, which really would come out in the form of earnings, uh, that would be a game changer. That would be a game changer more than the China deal. So, uh, Day, is that kind of our conclusion um, that for those who are paying attention to quarter by quarter moves in the market, mm. um, that the earnings season is really maybe the bigger story right now than the trade front? Yeah, I, well, it's it's hard it's hard to determine how that would play out. I assume that if earnings, uh, if CEOs can kind of blame the uh, earnings miss on issues with the trade deal, and a trade deal was stamped out, and the market has a lot to look forward to. I think that would uh, that would outweigh that like a, a miss like that in, in, in my opinion, given how much the market places an emphasis on forward guidance. But I, I you know, it's not something I could say with a high level of conviction. I, I don't know. It, it, I guess it depends on how these companies are missing and uh, you know the story behind it. So, I think uh. I think that it is um, important, you know, to be able to reinforce for clients right now the difficulty of the period we're in. Because we, we do these podcasts weekly, sometimes a couple times a week, and, and we're sitting here talking about what moved the markets last week, even breaking up one week into two periods of the first half of the week for the second half of the week. And now we're extending it to a little more rational of a timeline, meaning a whole fourth quarter. But honestly, <coughs> I, I think that um, the, the different growth the stuff that we do and believe in so much here is so important right now because we're sitting here talking about stuff that is real and and is absolutely intervening in the the behavior of capital markets around the trade war or quarterly earnings expectations or the next FOMC meeting but the fact of the matter is that if one of those things got removed uh, as an impediment to markets there would be something else there and that is just not going to change as far as my eyes can see right now when you're starting off at 17 and a half times S&P 500 you just don't have the greatest argument for index investing ever, which is that it's underpriced relative to historical valuations. So even during a recession, I can be very bullish about stocks because you just simply have an argument. You just you believe in capitalism. So you believe corporate profitability is going to come back. You don't know if it'll be three months or a year, but you know that that's what markets do, meaning companies ability to get back to bottom line. And and so in a lot of ways, it's just hard to be overly optimistic where you want to have a heavy overweight to equities. If the Fed is going to do QE4 and give two more rate cuts and trade war goes away and Elizabeth Warren's not going to be president, I still can't get super excited about a stock market almost at 20 times. And if all those things happen, the market would be at 20 times. Yeah, it would. I, I would get excited about it based on a, a, the Tina kind of idea where there is Tina no, Turner Tina Turner <laughs> <laughs> Tina is in uh, the acronym there is no alternative yeah. on a relative basis I would get excited about it but I agree at a fundamental basis looking where PEs are historically is difficult um, but uh, is Tina still going to be working if you had full trade war removal uh, Elizabeth Warren's not going to mm. be president and the Fed's cutting and you get some global synchronicity and accommodative monetary policy mm. Does that would that invite emerging markets as an alternative? I don't think it would bring Europe back in play because I'm very convinced of their secular structural problems. But I wonder if even Tina would be somewhat diminished because in theory some of those positive macro events mm. would open up Japan a little bit, would open up EM a little bit. Right, and when when I say say Tina, I, I I'm I'm t in the context of just stocks in general, the stocks that we own in general. In emerging market equities would be one of them. Okay. Relative to relative to broad asset classes like Got it. like bonds and alternatives. Okay. And cash. 
Uh, but speaking so, of that rotation, I mean, I think but, you would get yeah. you know outperformance in some of those sectors. So like you know yeah. you know if all those things came to fruition, lowering rates, trade deal gets done, you know Warren's not president, those th- all things happen. I think stocks in general would go up, and maybe those valuations on the index might get towards twenty. Mm-hmm. But I think you'd have things that are currently trading valuations in the in the single digits or high or low double digits. You know, emerging markets or some of these value sectors we're talking about, energy, um, industrials, things like that. I think the percentage move up on those would be larger than the overall market. And so I think you'd, you'd get outperformance with that. So there, there's still pockets of the market I think that would be that I could get excited yeah. about more than the overall just broad index. Good, yeah, good call. Um, I yeah. Let me go around the, the circle this way, and then I'll close this out. Robert, why don't you give a concluding thought on what you think about where we are with the trade stuff, and then um, maybe macroeconomic conclusion. Yeah, the, the, with regards to the trade stuff, I think it's a, a ceasefire more than anything. We'll see what actually comes to fruition in uh, I think November is when they're due to actually sign or you know finalize this round. Um, I think the looking at earnings in, in the shorter term is, in my opinion, more important than what happens over the next couple of weeks. There'll be probably tweets, things like that. Uh, on a macro level, I would certainly echo, in the meantime, the, the TINA thesis. Mm-hmm. I think for right now, the rotation to value will continue. Well, I'm excited to finally start with Q3 reporting um, tomorrow, actually. Um, but I guess more than Q3 and Q4 guidance, I'm really hoping to get the beginning of 2020 guidance for companies. And unlike, they're unlikely to do that until they announce Q4, which will be in January, February. So uh, we'll see how much um, you know visibility they have on 2020. But that's really what matters. Um, because I get at the moment, S&P um, estimates are assuming like a 10% uh, year-on-year growth mm. for 2020, which is far from done. So if that doesn't happen, it's hard to see how the you know, market uh, can go up next year. Yeah. yeah, I would say the takeaway from last week, Friday, with this sort of mini deal or phase one deal was <clears throat> not so much the details, which there weren't really all that many. There's some agricultural good purchases and some commitments on IP and, and currency and such, but it's just the shifting of gears for you know being more of a uh, at odds with one another and, uh, to getting something more productive done. And, and I think that's positive for markets. I think it's positive for the economy. And I think it's positive for ultimately, eventually, it will be positive for fundamentals, but it will take take some time. So from an economic standpoint, um, I'm fairly fairly positive on things at this time. Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, those things are positive. What happened on Friday is uh, is a hell of a lot better than uh, than an escalation. I'm also looking forward to Q3 uh, numbers too. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing some of the sentiment and the guidance. Uh, and as far as the ceasefire goes, I agree with Julian that Trump has every incentive in the world to maintain a ceasefire. Although this, it also depends on what the Chinese are doing. Uh, I mean, no matter what his incentives are, he's not going to lose face. If you know some Chinese official says X and he's got to respond, and then we're back in the same a similar situation, yeah. so uh, so yeah, I, I mean I I think there'll be a ceasefire, but also I want to maintain some degree of defensiveness. You know, you know the idea that that uh, uh, multiple outcomes are possible. That's that's where I want my concluding thoughts to go. Is kind of piggybacking off of your final thought there about defensiveness. I've really not done well. Um, uh, in any level, presuming that President Trump would behave the way that one would expect or where you right. think the mm-hmm. leverage is lined up. Um, I most certainly agree with the logic of everything that we've said today. And uh, yet there are so many third and fourth order effects that could come out of everything going on that um, I, I, I have to have a kind of cap on my level of confidence. <laughs> um, and, you know, there, I could see a scenario, honestly, where whole thing kind of gets away politically and then he just doesn't care what the political outcome would be out of the China deal. Um, I don't think that we should be operating as if both sides view it like, oh, we have the other side where we want them and so therefore both sides will just do nothing. Um, I maintain a contrarian position that China has more leverage than the U.S. does. A lot of people don't agree with me and a lot of people just don't like what I'm saying and that's okay. But I stated on the basis of the fact that there it's not even about the political cycle, though that's a big part of it relative to ours. It's based on the fact that their population expects something different. Our population expects um, the market going higher, unemployment staying low, GDP growing. Um, you know, they, in Rust Belt states, they want some to be able to say there's new manufacturing jobs, all those things. 
I think that there's a significant portion once you get outside of Beijing proper and Shanghai proper, there's a significant portion of the population that's willing to endure economic pain out of national pride. And that they've the Chinese have done a good job. I think it's mostly propagandist, but they've done a good job selling them that they're being attacked reputationally and they have to defend their national honor. And so at some point of negotiations get tricky. Right now, they're, they're, we are negotiating on basis of mutually assured economic destruction, and, and that's moving the ball forward. But if something falls apart... I think it would be easier for China to say, okay, well, whatever, let us let us have it, than, than the U.S., knowing um, that there's so much other vulnerability out there. So I believe the news Friday is positive. I believe currency tail risk has largely been diminished, and I expect President Trump to go all the way through, get the deal done, but I will refuse to take away our mantra that the expectation right now is volatility, volatility, volatility. Mm -hmm. I think you will have up 400 point. Now, futures being up 100 and then down 100, okay, that's a little overnight volatility, but I mean more than that. I mean 500 point up weeks and 500 point mm -hmm. down weeks for the next several months. I yeah. think that's what we're probably ahead for. Yeah. And um, I would like to be reinvesting dividends throughout that period. Amen. I think it's an accumulation of capital that is um, one of the only ways you actually get some form of free money in, in the world of investing. So uh, I think well, anyone so else well, want to? Okay. I will close this out with that. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to this Investment Committee special podcast on the U.S.-China trade war. If there are any meaningful developments on things, we'll come back with another. The um, next uh, Investment Committee podcast we're going to do will be a kind of comprehensive summary um, that uh, Dea and Brian and I are going to present when we get back from New York City. I leave in a couple of days. They join me a couple of days thereafter, and we have – um, you know, nearly, uh, uh, I think, a dozen and a half meetings in the city with various hedge funds, portfolio managers, um, relationships of ours, not only conducting our due diligence on strategies that we're actively invested in ourselves, uh, but also just sort of doing idea sharing and, and having these types of discussions that, you know, you're witnessing our committee has this on this podcast. We're having these with all these multiple people to help formulate our worldview, challenge some of our presuppositions, and, and, and determine if there are, in fact, areas where different risks would be suitable, less risk would be suitable, more risk. Uh, these are really fruitful conversations. We're going to bring you a podcast to kind of handicap all those things and summarize those things here in a couple weeks. Uh, reach out anytime. Please write us a review. Uh, please uh, subscribe to this Dividend Cafe podcast and whatever your chosen player is. The subscription deal really helps us. And uh, and we would love for you to share this with your friends as we build out our traffic and uh, are able to uh, bring you more and more Dividend Cafe. Thank you for listening to the Dividend Cafe, financial food for thought. Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities LLC, a member of FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor of the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced here will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance. is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinion, news, research, analyses, prices, or other that information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team at Hightower should not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions for the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date reference. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.